want us to look at Exodus 23, 20 to 33. Now, as Israel has been brought out of Egypt into the wilderness, God is now giving them all of the instruction about what's to come for them. They're not at the point of entering the land. They're not going to be for decades because of their disobedience. But the Lord is giving them in the wilderness all of the instructions about what they're supposed to do when they come into the land. Some of those instructions will have to do with things like the sacrificial system and the, the, the worship, the ceremonial laws, the tabernacle. So much of Exodus is devoted to that. But here in Exodus 23, we have this instruction about the conquest of Canaan. And now the Lord says through Moses, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. You shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods... It will surely be a snare to you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I was a seminary student, a very young seminary student, there was a, um, a small but very vocal subset of students at the seminary I went to that had embraced a sort of neo-reformed political theology, and they talked a lot about uh, militant defeat of all unbelievers. And at a conference I was at, there was a representative group of books that a uh, major proponent of this movement that I had a strong revulsion against had put out, and, and I was shocked at some of the pictures. There was a militant fisk, there was barbed wire, there was a tank. This was a Christian theology conference. And so I got some of my friends and I brought them over and I said, now I want you to look at this militant fist, this tank, and this barbed wire, and these books about Christians dominating and destroying everybody that's wicked and unbelieving and making sure that we eradicate all unbelievers from the face of the earth. And I want you to tell me, does that look like Christian theology to you? 
And almost every one of them said, well, I know what you say, but, and I thought, oh man, we got a major problem. We are reading a very different New Testament than, than, than one another are reading. Because Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you, bless those that persecute you, do good to those, do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a very clear Christian ethic of loving and seeking to bless our enemies as Christians in the New Covenant era. I am shocked that there are professing Christians today that revolt against loving and blessing our enemies and would rather embrace the theology of destroying them. Now, that being said, why are people attracted to those kind of aberrant forms of theology? Well, one very simple reason is because in the Old Testament, God told the Old Covenant Church, when I bring you into the land, I want you to wipe everybody out that's wicked. I want you to destroy all your enemies. I want you to do nothing with anything that was theirs, and I want you to utterly obliterate them, and I am going to do that for you and with you. And so you can understand how a lot of Christians have failed to understand the significance of what we call harem warfare, jihad, holy war. And it's very important for us as Christians to understand why in redemptive history this unique, this unique proposal is established by God and why God commands his people to do this to particular people at a particular time in a particular place. And it's also important for us to understand how what God told Old Covenant Israel as they were preparing to come in the land has application to us in a very different way than it had application to them in the Old Covenant. Now, I want us to consider as we look at this passage together, and this is going to be sort of a hybrid between a sermon and a theological talk for you all tonight, but I want us to consider three things. First, I want us to consider the command for consecration. Secondly, I want us to consider the blessing of consecration. And third, I want us to consider the rationale for consecration, the command, the blessing, and the rationale of consecration. We'll notice as God is preparing Israel to come into the land that in verse 20, he says, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now, We have talked about the angel of the Lord in previous sermons, and there are a lot of proposals by theologians about who this angel is. There are people that think this angel is Moses. There are others who think that it was Joshua. There are others who think it is a legitimate angel. There are others who think it is the the, uh, fiery pillar and the cloudy pillar. Um, While we may not be 100% sure, there is a very, very, very close identification between this angel, and the word in Hebrew is simply messenger, and God himself. Notice the end of verse 21. The Lord says through Moses about this messenger, my name is in him. My name is in him. There's an identification between God, his name, his character, and his being, and this messenger. I want to read to you what Phil Riken says, and I think that he is right. He says, many Christians have identified this angel, this messenger, as the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Son of God. We have encountered this phenomenon before, back at the burning bush, at the place where the water came from the rock. 
Long before his incarnation, long before he was born in Bethlehem, Christ was with his people on their way to salvation. This is the same messenger of the covenant that appears to Joshua when Joshua is about to lead the people into the promised land. Here, when God is saying, I'm going to send my angel before you, remember the commander of the Lord's army appears to Joshua. And Joshua says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the commander of the Lord's army says, no. And essentially what he's saying to Joshua is, Joshua, you think the battle is out there. What you don't know is that the battle is really inside you. I'm neither for you nor for your enemies. I am the captain of salvation. Here is the same messenger, I believe, that God is saying, I am going to send him. He is going to lead you into the land. He is going to establish for you the conquest. Now, we all know that what we read about here was earlier promised to Abraham so long before. You may, get, you may not remember this, but back when God was cutting the covenant with Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 15, listen to this, verses 18 and 20. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And the Lord says that it's not going to be for another 400 years because the iniquity of these people is not yet full. So what the Lord is saying is there is a special place I am going to deliver your descendants to. I'm going to give it to them as an inheritance. But right now, those nations that are dwelling in it, I have dealings with them that I need to deal with. And until I'm ready to deal with them in full justice... It's not time for your descendants to go into the land. Now, that very simply explains to us one way we can understand conquest, and that is that these nations were so wicked and so abominable, and they were, that they were justly deserving of God's immediate and swift judgment. And that is one very simple, straightforward, and biblically substantiated explanation for holy war. But it is not everything. Because God is going to use Israel in this act of holy war. And if you remember, Israel, and let me say this, you are no better than those nations by nature. Israel was no better than the other nations. They weren't holier than the other nations. They weren't godlier than the other nations. They weren't in and of themselves seeking to live morally upright lives. In fact, generation after generation after generation of Israel showed that they were just as, if not more, wicked than the other nations. So why is God going to use Israel in bringing them into the land, and why is he going to use them in cooperation in driving these other nations out? And one very simple answer is that God is a God of consecration. In order for Israel to be God's people, they need to be consecrated. And so you have this command for consecration. Notice verse 22. Now, this is law. This is not gospel, but this is God commanding his people to be consecrated. If you obey, carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And then he says in verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. You see, God is intent on consecrating his church. He is a holy God. 
They are to be a holy people, and they are to dwell with this holy God in what he will inevitably call a holy land. Now, one of the things that's very interesting is nowhere in the Old Testament does God tell Israel to go into all the world and destroy all the nations. This is one of the great weaknesses with people that embrace this militant ideology often born out of a Napoleon complex. And I'm just going out on a limb pastorally. But, but, but God never says to Israel, if you are going to be my people, you will destroy every nation of the world. In fact, God says to Israel, you're to be a light to the nations. They, there was an evangelistic mission that Israel was to have to carry the gospel to the nations, to bless the nations, to call the nations back. God will send Jonah to Nineveh, not to destroy Nineveh, to bring a, an opportunity for mercy and grace to them. But here, God says, there is not going to be any mercy and grace for these nations in this land. And and here's the very simple principle again. The holy covenant God, if he is ever going to dwell with this people and they are going to be set apart and consecrated to him, is going to have to make everything consecrated and holy. You might, and maybe you've never thought about this, one of the most helpful things for me is, to think of the land of Israel as the dwelling place of God. It's the temple. And you'll remember in the Old Testament, God is constantly talking about the temple being polluted with idols and the temple needing to be cleansed. What God is essentially saying to Israel is, I'm going to give you this land, but in order for you to dwell as a consecrated people in this land, that land too is going to have to be cleansed. The temple is going to have to be cleansed. This is so very important. Because God will not dwell with a polluted people in a polluted land. In redemptive history, this was a unique redemptive historical provision where God is doing something very unique in teaching Israel the principle of consecration. Listen to this. Greg Lanier puts it this way. God is, in effect, drawing his people into a war against the false gods that challenge his rule in order that he might consecrate a nation through which he may be worshipped rightly on earth. You see, the purpose was that God would show them that what lay behind these wicked nations were these demon gods, and that his people were to have nothing to do with that false worship and that demonic worship, if we can put it that way. And as Lanier says, he is drawing his people into war against false gods. Notice again, God says in verse 24, when I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. Now, this is not an idea that first and foremost springs up with Israel in the wilderness as they prepare to go into the promised land. This is a principle that goes back to Genesis 3.15. Remember when God sets enmity between Satan and his seed and between the woman and her seed. God is is dividing his kingdom from the the kingdoms of the evil one, the, the kingdom of darkness. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of the sun, the kingdom of darkness. And as redemptive history develops, we see that conflict between those seeds. Israel, in a sense, typically serves as the seed of the woman until Christ comes. And Israel is to be distinct as such in her warfare with the, the kingdoms of, of the evil one. 
And, and so Genesis 3.15 is setting the stage. The pagan nations in the promised land were, were essentially the, the epitome of the seed of the serpent. And God is showing that there is going to be redemptive warfare. There's going to be a consecration of his people. There's going to be a gathering together. And God is going to dwell with his people by grace in this special place at this special time. Now, listen to this. Vern Poitras says this. The Old Testament contains ample indications that God brings Israel under his rule by a process of holy war similar to the conquest of Canaan. In the case of the Canaanites, their approach to God and his rule means consecration to utter destruction. You see, God is consecrating them. He is devoting them to destruction. And he is devoting Israel to consecration to be the holy covenant people. Poitras says in the case of Israel, the approach of God involves the use of substitutes that are consecrated to destruction. Isn't that interesting? Unless something is consecrated, designated to destruction, the evil, Israel cannot dwell with God. There is a principle of salvation through judgment in the conquest. Now, um, there is that command for consecration strewn through this entire section. But then there is also the blessing of consecration. Secondly, notice there in verse 25, the Lord says, you shall serve the Lord, your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. Now, if we were going to take the militant harem warfare and carry it over to the new covenant, you're going to have to take this and carry it over wholesale. And then you believe in health, wealth, prosperity, and everything you say you hate, you need to believe. God is not saying, if you obey enough, you'll never get sick in the new covenant era. What he's saying is there will be tangible blessings of consecration for Israel in the physical land as a typical son under the rule of God in a typical land typifying the seed of the woman and the blessings of God. And so there are these material blessings that are pronounced in the Old Testament. There are blessings of consecration. We see them set out especially at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of the book of the covenant in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. If you obey, blessing. If you obey, blessing. If you obey, blessing. If you disobey, cursing. If you disobey, cursing. And those things are there to remind Israel that there are greater spiritual blessings and curses that everyone deserves commensurate with our relationship to his law. And yet God is teaching Israel there are these blessings. There's blessing of provision, first of all. Provision, notice that. Your, your bread, your water, I will take away your sickness. And then there are blessings of security. Notice verse 29. I will drive them out from before you, in, not in one year, lest the land becomes desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. God here is considering what might happen to Israel if he takes all these nations away. There will be new threats. They will be endangered. He is providing for them. He is going to protect them if they are a consecrated people. And then there is the provision of expansion. Notice verse 31. I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. You shall drive them out. Before you, And so God is saying, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to protect you, and you are going to possess this expansion 
of what I've promised you. Now, without jumping all the way to the New Covenant era, I want to say you can, you can do the transition for yourself, and you can know that when we have been consecrated to God through Christ, what does the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians 1? That we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in Christ, and he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have greater blessings than just multiplication of bread and water. We have greater blessings than just protection from physical wild animals. We have greater blessings than the inheritance of an expanded little piece of land in Palestine. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There are always blessings commensurate with God's consecration of his people. And so we have looked at tonight, very briefly, the command for consecration and the blessing of consecration. Now I want us to consider, uh, thirdly, the rationale for consecration. I want you to look at verses 32 and 33. Notice this, that the rationale is that God wants his people to dwell with him and to worship him in a way that is pleasing to him and good for them. God wants his people to be a people that worship him in a way that is pleasing to him and beneficial to them. Notice this. He says, you shall make no covenant with these nations and their gods. You shall not dwell in the land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. What is the big danger that God is saying he is acting on? In order to consecrate his people, it's that the Lord knows that deep down in our hearts, every one of us are prone to idolatry. And if we are not consecrated fully, and if there is not this principle of of purging and God devoting these wicked nations in the land to destruction, that Israel will be led astray to worship their false gods and will lose the purity of the true worship of God as God has revealed himself in Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that in the New Covenant, because if you are one of these people who like militant theology, you might say, well, I'm still for that. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say, I want you to go into the Middle East, I want you to devote every single... Islamic idolater to destruction. I want you to kill them and have nothing to do with them. In fact, what Jesus tells us is that we make holy war in the new covenant through the Great Commission. Isn't that interesting? He tells the disciples, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always wherever you go till the end of the age. You see, God's presence is always with his people. As the gospel goes out, God is using his people to make warfare. We are still engaged in holy war, but we do so through evangelism, not through militancy. God tears down the strongholds of Satan's kingdom by by the spread of the gospel to the nations. You know, there's a lot of debate in the Christian church about what it means for Satan to be bound. I do believe that Christ bound the evil one on the cross and that, that Satan is limited in his, in his 
um, his free reign, though he is not inactive. Um, the best the best way I can explain it is in the book of Revelation when it says that Satan has been bound. It's, it's so that the nations, the Apostle John says, are deceived no longer. It's so that the gospel can have free reign, not just in Israel, but throughout the nations of the world. Um, now, how do we get from God's command for harem warfare in the promised land to holy war through evangelizing the nations, and we do so through Christ. And it's very interesting. Jesus recapitulates Israel because Israel fails. At every point, Israel fails. And so Jesus comes as the true son of Abraham, and he does what Abraham failed to do. And he does what, I'm sorry, what Israel failed to do. You'll remember when God redeems Israel, he brings them through the water, and he takes them into the wilderness. That's where we're at tonight. We're in the wilderness. And you'll remember when Christ comes, he goes through the waters of baptism and he goes immediately into the wilderness. And then no sooner does he go face to face with the, the serpent himself in the wilderness and resist his temptations that he steps out on the promised land. And what does Jesus do the second he steps out on the promised land? He starts killing people. No. No. If you're into militant theology, Jesus doesn't start killing people. He starts casting out demons. He starts tearing down Satan's kingdom. He starts purging the land of its uncleanness. This this incredible, pronounced, heightened warfare, the demon possession, the the extraordinary uh, manifestation of Satan's kingdom in the promised land, in Israel, in the coming of Christ. And Christ begins to cleanse the land. Listen to this. G.K. Beale says the defeat of the devil in the wilderness may also be viewed secondarily to be Jesus' first act of conquering the latter-day Canaanites. Don't miss that. God was concerned with the demon gods of the nations. When Jesus comes, he's concerned with tearing down principalities and powers. And he does so by setting men and women free. He does so ultimately by defeating the evil one on the cross. He does so by binding the evil one. He does so by taking away Satan's weapons that he uses against God's people. And even more marvelously, and I I preached about this when we were in John's Gospel, Jesus, remember, he cleanses the temple in Israel twice because of the uncleanness. But ultimately, when Jesus goes to the cross, He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. What is happening? All of your uncleanness, all of my sin is being imputed to him. The temple is polluted. The land is polluted. And when God's judgment is poured out and he devotes his son to destruction for you and me and for others throughout the nations, he is cleansing the temple, a place to dwell with his people in consecration. Now, that is not fanciful. This is the steps of redemptive history. Now, further, we are called to engage in holy war, in our war against our own sin. And this is where the Apostle Paul goes in Ephesians chapter 6, doesn't he? And he says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We're not called to militant devotion of ungodly nations to physical destruction. God is going to judge the nations of the world on the last day. Paul says we wrestle with principalities and powers 
And so he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand and stand in the evil day. And what is his main concern? That you may be able to resist the wiles of the devil. What, was, what did God tell Israel was going to happen to them if they didn't destroy the wicked nations in the promised land in that holy place that in redemptive history he set apart to dwell with his people. What was going to happen? He says they're going to become a thorn in your side. They're going to become a perpetual thorn in your side. Now there is a very real sense where we're to see our sin in the words of the Puritans, and this was a very common phrase. I didn't make it up. John Owen uses it often as the Canaanites within. The Canaanites within. Listen to this. Owen says, lust is like the stubborn Canaanites who after the general conquest of the land would dwell in it still. Indeed, when Israel grew strong, they brought them under tribute, but they could not utterly expel them. The kingdom and rule belongs to grace. And when it grows strong, it brings sin much under, but it will not be ever wholly driven out in this life. The body of death is not utterly to be done away but in and by the death of the body. In the flesh, the best saints, in the, in the flesh of the best saints, there, quote unquote, dwells no good thing, Romans 7, 18. But the contrary, there is the root of all evil, the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit lust against the flesh. And that means throughout the rest of our time here, we are called by God to live as consecrated people who are serious about making war against the Canaanites within and to carry the gospel to the nations so that Satan's kingdom is torn down as men and women are converted to the grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't expect you to take what I just dumped on you in 31 minutes and 59 seconds to anybody that asks you about holy war in the Old Testament, but I do expect that you got enough out of this that you understand that what God told Israel in the Old Covenant for that physical provision was typical of the spiritual realities that are true in Christ and true in the new covenant church throughout the world. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His church transcends nations. His people are a people that are blood-bought out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. And during our sojourn here, we are called to fight against our sin and against the wiles of the evil one. And we are to treat that battle in the same way and with the same seriousness as God's instruction to Israel to treat holy war in the physical land with physical enemies. And we are to do so that we are a people that worship him through Christ in spirit and in truth. Remember Jesus said there's a time coming when men will neither worship on this mountain or any physical place But God seeks those that will worship him in spirit and in truth, that we have the promises of God. Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves. Because we have such great promises, let us cleanse ourselves of the impurity of our flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, looking to the Lord Jesus who has conquered Satan's kingdom and knowing that God has already, already consecrated us in Christ and has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he has said, just as he said in the Great Commission, lo, I am with you always, 
We are not hoping he'll be with us. He says, lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Let him who hears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this evening. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I know that this is a great deal to cover, but we do pray this evening that you would help us to understand that movement from your dealings with Old Covenant Israel in that typical land, in that physical battle in which you had them engage with those nations, so that we would understand those spiritual truths that come from that for the life that we are to live by union with Christ, who has conquered Satan, who has defeated the kingdom of darkness, who has transferred us into his kingdom, the kingdom of light and life. Our God, we do pray that you would make us a people that are resolute in, in waging holy war against that indwelling sin, those sins that so easily beset us, those sins that become to us thorns in our side. Lord, help us to be vigilant in that battle against our own sin and make us a people that are vigilant in the battle and carrying the gospel to the nations. Our God, we pray that you would cause the gospel to conquer, that you would set men and women free to the gracious and loving reign of the Savior, that you would overthrow the, the false religions and false teachings, but that you would do so through that gracious proclamation of the forgiveness of sins and redemption in Christ. Our God, we pray that you would make us a people who understand these things and who hold fast to them and put them to practice in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.